Welcome to Healing the Spirit, a space where we awaken our creativity, deepen our connections, and remember who we are through the lens of astrology, archetypes, and art making. I'm your host, Jonathan Coe. Hello everyone, welcome to Healing the Spirit. This is a conversation that I recorded with Leah Garza a few weeks back, and I absolutely love this conversation. I have really enjoyed working with Leah in the past couple of years. I have um, learned so much about decoloniality as well as the Akasha from Leah. I knew Leah through my dear friend, Mary Shook. You may know Mary and I have a podcast, and that podcast actually came out of um, our explorations together in Living Systems, which is one of Leah's courses. And so um, Leah's work has really been so heart-shifting for me. It has changed the way that I look at life. It has changed the way that I interact with especially the non-human world around me, and it has shifted my perspectives on belonging, which is actually truly one of my um, biggest longing and also my deepest trauma. And so, yeah, it would be an understatement to say that Leah's work has been really important for me. Um, Let me read you Leah's bio. Leah Garza is a student, teacher, and mystic based out of Los Angeles. She's the creator behind Crystals of Altamira and Living Systems. Currently, she is writing her dissertation on topics in depth psychology, decoloniality, and ontology. Her work, whether academic or spiritual, is focused on dissolving the illusion of fixed individualism and reimagining relationality and belonging for all beings. We talk about all of that and more in the conversation. So I will let you get to the conversation. But before that, I will also share that Leah's um, next cohort of Living Systems is starting again, I believe, in March. Um, And so I'm going to share all of the links. And if you resonate with her, with her presence and her work, um, I would highly recommend it. All right. This is my conversation with Leah Garza. Hello, Leah. Thank you for being here. Hi, Jonathan. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to have you. Yeah, before we started recording, I was telling you that I am remembering when I started learning from you and when I started uh, getting readings from you. And that was literally like two years ago now. So it's really wild that time has flown. And I feel like your work has really helped me shift my way of looking at the world. Like, it's so hard for me to even consider, like, what was I thinking about prior to Leah? 
like working with Leah, studying with Leah. It's funny, Leah, because I was even thinking about like your approach and how you teach. And I like the spaciousness that you give with these containers because it almost feels like they start to become a part of the way that I see the world. And I'm also realizing that like, oh, there are also things that I still think about that we're probably not totally aligned, you know, but I think that's part of the, that's part of the way that your work is working through people. Like, I think when I think about you, I'm, I'm really thinking about the contrast of you pursuing this PhD, essentially in decoloniality, and then you're teaching the rest of us who are like not in programs like that. Like I am really far away from academia at this point, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. and, um, I don't know if that's a good place to start, but that's where I'm landing at this point. I'm just, I'm curious to hear if you have any responses to that. Yeah, that's, it's always fun. Well, at this point in my life, it's fun to hear from people how they see me. I think earlier in my life, I'd be mortified. Like, please just don't see me at all. (laughs) I definitely don't want to hear your opinion on me. Um, Because it's interesting that you say spaciousness in the containers because... I feel like I load them up with like the headiest topics and it's dense and there's no space and people are like, what? And I'm like, I'm sorry. I don't don't know another way to do, to do it. (laughs) Um, So that's great feedback for me. Um, But yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting, Jonathan, because I don't see you as my student. I really see you as my peer especially like at this point especially um so it's 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 interesting to hear you speak on how much like my way of thinking has influenced your way of thinking because I would say it's for me the opposite like the opposite is true for me the converse is true for me too that Mm. I I think of you as a peer like if I had a, a query in some thing and you 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 might be a person that would come into my head is out I'll go ask Jonathan Mm. so I you know just to give that contrast and how we see each other is really our personal experience I I don't see you the way you see (laughs) I don't see myself the way you see me to you (laughs) um it makes me wonder were you always really good at school yes (laughs) (laughs) not not gonna lie yes i was (laughs) i don't know i I, not only was i always good at school but from a very young age i was even good at teaching like it just Ah. i just have like a a natural facility for explaining concepts in really relatable ways I, i remember like explaining things to my classmates like you know in like third grade you know I was eight years Mm -hmm. old Mm -hmm. and and not trying to be bossy I mean that's a whole other part of my personality but like (laughs) not trying to be bossy but just like oh it's this and this and this let me explain to you this way and like I've always had like a real easy connection with metaphor and using metaphor to explain concepts which I do a lot in my classes at this point um and I think like what I, I maybe I'm just putting myself on the biggest pedestal um, in the universe. <laughs> Go but for it. 
I, I feel like if I can be a good storyteller, Mm. then people will receive the concepts Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. better. And because we don't talk about simple ideas in living systems whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. Those are very complex, very weird ideas that require, they require rigor, rigorous thinking on the part of the, of the, the person learning it. Mm. And it, I know that some of us, especially in the West, especially the United States, we're not given opportunities to flex our critical thinking muscles, but that doesn't, I just have such a profound adoration for, for people. And I have so much faith that people, if you just say it to them in the right way, they'll totally get it. Mm-hmm. Like anyone could have these conversations with us, but, but you have to talk to people in a way that will build a bridge and not in a way that will alienate. And so to me, that's always been a point of relationship for me was through teaching and not in a pedantic, not in a hierarchical way, but really in a way that was like, I want you to know what I know. So then we can be intimate together. Mm-hmm. Wow. The words that are coming to my mind is teaching as a way of building connection. Yeah. You know, yeah, teaching I, as a way of falling in love with the world. Mm-hmm. Yes. I have always felt that. And my best days as a classroom teacher were the ones where like, you come away and this, it's like the student is like, oh my God, I get this. And then you're like, yes, you get it. Okay. So now that you get it, what do you think about it? Mm-hmm. Like you're coming to the table with your whole lifetime of experiences and perspectives and knowledges. Take that and now entangle it with the stuff we just talked about. I want to know what you think about this thing. I don't want you to think what I think. If yeah. you think what I think because it resonates, that's awesome. But like, mm-hmm. and, and this is like what was so why what was so important with the Akashic mentorship was I would get people asking like, how do I become a reader like you? How do I mm-hmm. read like you? And there was something mm-hmm. just icky about that question because what I love for people to feel is how do I be more me? Mm-hmm. How do you be a reader like you? Mm-hmm. I want to get a reading from you. I want to learn. I want to know what you can do with this, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. do you ever have this, like you're a, you're a musical person, you make music, you think in music. Do you ever like meet a fascinating person and be like, I wonder what you would do with music? Yeah. Like whether they're musical or not. And just be like, like, what would you make with this palette? Like, you're such a weirdo. I want to know what would come out of you. I know. Yeah. I, yeah. yeah. Actually, I, I love that you brought that up, Leah, because that's literally how I have been thinking about approaching a lot of my, I don't know, mystical work, you know, with astrology, yeah. with like energy and things like that. Because to me, um, something I'm currently going back to a lot is like, a lot of my ancestral practice, like even thinking about practices like Qigong is literally like Mm -hmm. people, you know, seeing visions or observing Mm -hmm. something in nature and then trying to like see what happens in their body when they try to emulate it. Right. And it's, it's almost like our individual bodies, I think 
at this point in where we're at as humans, we can explore what emerges out of our bodies and trust that that's like a totally new thing, you know? And I think music is one of those things that are so fascinating because um, we're really working with frequency in a very tangible way, right? Like literally, you know, in the new age spirituality world, we talk about frequency all the all the fucking time and it's literally with music you are playing with literal frequency and it's like my voice for example this really blew my mind a couple years ago when I finally realized it where this voice like doesn't exist anywhere else in the universe yeah like this exact frequency right yeah your exact frequency doesn't exist anywhere else in the world Leah like how wild is that it's it's totally wild it's totally wild to me too just to not go nuts on the science of sound but like that while your frequency while like like there's like this concreteness to frequency that you're talking about like there's this realness Mm -hmm. and at the same time it is only perceivable in someone's consciousness Mm. so like there's there's something else happening we're like you and I are in different parts of the country right now. We are not physically together. And I don't know how the magic of digital sound works, but it is projecting some kind of frequency through my my headphones into my ears. Yeah. And then and then through the magic of our like auditory nerves or whatever, we're interpreting it interpreting it into the machine of our brains, which somehow which every scientist fails has failed to make a connection this is this is the mystery of the unknown is somehow in you know understood through consciousness the mm-hmm. consciousness of leah which is a fraction of the consciousness of the collective of the whole and and so somehow through total distance total abstract frequency transmission i understand you mm-hmm. and i hear you and you can hear me and that is like just insane to me that's just so crazy it's like what magical things our bodies are that allow us to have these occurrences so in such an everyday way that we take it for granted Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. it's it's incredible yeah yeah and to take that idea a little bit further i have been thinking about how you know, to go to bring back one of the concepts that really struck me the most that you taught in Living Systems, uh, entanglement. I've been yeah. thinking about the idea that even our consciousness, like in its pure essence, right, is always filtered through and entangling with, interacting with mm-hmm. the culture that we come into contact with. Like I've been thinking about myself, you know, and about how I migrated to the US when I was 17. Right. And then I basically started developing like another personality, you know, how crazy is that? And then now this personality is like, I don't know if, if you and I had met when I was 17, would I have understood you? Would you have understood Mm. me? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Right. Mm. But somehow I've entangled enough with this culture, but also you know, with the culture that I came from, and then now we can communicate. Like, how crazy is that? Yeah. Did you speak English when you arrived? 
I did speak English. I went to an international school for like three years before I left,、mm-hmm. and I had already、mm-hmm. studied English a long time ago. But it wasn't—it wasn't just English, right? Like, right. I think when we talk about like when I'm thinking about living systems, when I'm thinking about the Akashic mentorship, we spoke about something else. We use English, but、yeah. I feel like if somebody like if I drop a random person who's my coworker into one of these classes, I think、yeah. they'd be a little lost, actually. Yes, one hundred percent. Yeah, but they couldn't find. It's not that they can't find their way. Yeah, that's what I was trying to say、yeah. earlier. It was like, I think if we met when you were seventeen, I absolutely would have found a way to understand for us to have mutual understanding in some way.、Mm-hmm. Maybe、mm-hmm. not in the profound way that we have now yet.、Mm-hmm. But I mean, I, I, for one thing, I think what you're talking about is pluriversality. You came from one ontology, and you learned how to live in this ontology,、mm-hmm. and in doing so, in that entanglement, in in kind of like entangling with the world of the West, you became the Jonathan that emerged through this world. Yeah, it's no less Jonathan of your life,、um, you know, at your home. It's no、yeah. less. That's no less you, either. You know, like,、mm-hmm. and and. I, I mean, not to like go back to teach. I'm gonna go back to teaching again. But like, I taught ESL and I taught new arrivals, like they new they call them newcomer classes,、mm-hmm. in、um, middle school and high school. And I and and it is like the number the, the number one thing you do. The first thing you do is like you have to build a bridge of trust with this student who is、mm-hmm. just arrived in a wild. Crazy place that they don't speak the language, don't understand the culture, don't know what the symbols in the streets are and the signs and like, and so like they're in a state of shock. How are they going to learn what a freaking past participle is in English? <laughs> they're、mm-hmm. like, and so like, the, like trust building trust is like the the core of a relation, like that kind of relationship of understanding. Yeah, there are so many kinds of relationship, but like. I want, and and I, I don't ignore. I don't like dismiss the need for building trust、mm-hmm. with my adult living system students or Akashic mentorship students. The same strategies that I use to build trust with like an eleven-year-old who just arrived from Cameroon or something. Those are the same strategies I use to build trust with anyone、mm-hmm. because we are. At the core, looking for the same things of that belonging, of that, yeah, you know, under being seen, being like understood, and I think a lot of、um, adult teachers. I mean, like this is what coloniality does. It teaches us, like that's that's for children,、mm-hmm. like the stuff you do with kids to get them to learn. That's for children. These are adults. They don't need icebreakers. They don't need team building. They don't need. They just need the give them the facts, make them take notes, and test them. And、yeah. I think that is absolutely an incorrect way and a harmful way to to try to teach、mm-hmm. and build relationship. Yeah,、mm-hmm. I feel like. I can go so many different places from that, but what's really coming up for me right now is I'm curious to hear you talk a little bit more about strategies. What do you mean by that? What has been、yeah. your experience and understanding of that concept through your practices like, and like lens strategies with teaching 
Yeah, or... but just in general, like, because I, I think if I'm remembering correctly, like your Akashic pathway uh, also has that, right? Your invocation divine has divine strategy. Divine strategy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. Um, well, I'm just going to say I'm a systems gal. I don't know. I don't know where that <laughs> is in my chart. But systems make sense to me. Mm. Like systems feel like boundaries and boundaries feel safe to me. Boundaries tell me how I how I can and cannot behave, what I can hope other people, the ways that I can hope other people will and will not behave. It gives systems and boundaries give us a sense of um, predictability, not rigidity in how we can exist, but a kind of. I can lean on that this reality will be stable if we can all adhere to the boundaries. Can we all adhere to the boundaries? No, things changing all the time. People, you know, we are beings of free will. We choose to opt against things that have been set up for us. That's okay too. But even knowing that there's unpredictability is a part of the system. Like, mm. oh, okay, I'm going to account for, I I don't know if I go out on the street if just because there's like traffic laws that someone won't drive up onto the sidewalk and strike me dead. I don't yeah. know, yeah. but I understand that that's a risk. So I'm going to build it into my experience when I go outside the house. Mm. I'm not going to stay in my house because I'm totally afraid of the potential of being harmed, but I will factor that in. So I think like strategies for one thing, well, for as, as a teacher, I can like use the teaching realm as like a practical place to project this, these examples. Um, I have taught classes that I was unprepared to teach and I don't like the way that feels. Mm. It feels terrifying and Mm -hmm. awful. And like, I have failed and I've let everyone down and I don't prefer that feeling. And so I look for, I decide to plan out my teaching time and I've just done this for so long and I've have so much teaching experience that I know how much content to put in, how much space to leave for wiggle room and discussion. I know when we should insert an activity. I know when I, I know these things because what I'm trying to do is get people to feel safe enough in my, in this, in my presence and in the presence of these concepts so that they will feel comfortable asking questions and being curious. Mm -hmm. And you cannot comfortably learn and ask questions if you feel unsafe there's this Mm -hmm. thing called in education theory called affective filter and the affective filter basically says that like like it it was um described i think it's i don't know steven pinkerton i don't know a linguist at usc who did this study on second language learners that you you put on a, a a filter because the embarrassment of being of being like uh, ignorant quotes around ignorant around learning a language is like humiliating. Mm -hmm. And and so people do all kinds of things to protect themselves from that embarrassment in learning like environment. Yeah. And so to me, what colonial education would do is say like, well, they got to learn how to just be embarrassed. And for me, I'm like, that's stupid (laughs) why don't we tend to the unmet needs that people have in spaces that are vulnerable Mm -hmm. and help make people build relationships and safety and a feeling of trust to an extent obviously like you know 
we're not all going to get naked in front of each other. I don't know why I just <laughs> said that, but you know, like we're not like going to do inappropriate vulnerability, mm-hmm. but let us be, what can I do to create a space that feels safe enough to be vulnerable enough to be curious and ask questions at the risk of sounding stupid in front of others Yeah, because nobody actually is stupid when you're learning. It's like, it's like, I don't know. I remember being younger and being like embarrassed to be a tourist. Like, <laughs> I don't want to ask where that is. I'm going to look stupid because I don't know. And then having this realization of like, of course you don't know. You've mm-hmm. never been here. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> tourism is a whole experience that people are aware of. Yeah. In fact, there's tourist industries where people are expecting you to not know so that they can make a business around telling you yeah here's where this is here's where that is like yes. here's a tour and so it was like it, i don't know i i just um i i am projecting a lot of my own vulnerability into this process but i have my experience has shown me that other people come to the table with similar similar vulnerabilities as me yeah so having a strategy feels safe to me and it has given me a lot of I've had a lot of good evidence that it works to build safety and trust in in relationship building Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah I it's funny because what's coming up for me is actually recognizing that as someone with a very specific experience in different education spaces like I would say I probably am similar to you Leah in that I grew up being really good at school and I didn't always mm-hmm. get along with my peers, but I was always, um, I was always the star student, you know? And yeah, yeah. I realized that for me, it has been a lot about like getting deeper into like, what were some of the things that I was insecure about? Because mm-hmm. when I try to match a learning space to my own specific strategies oftentimes they mm-hmm. don't match because yeah. as a student i was over i was the overcompensating yeah. student you know so yeah. I've, for me in in like learning spaces i've had to learn to kind of shift into realizing that other people have the same needs or the same fears but they've been responding differently And so how do I tend to the other end of the spectrum, which to me, part of the challenge was that in order for me to be this over-functioning student, I had to really shut out my under-functioning student within, right? Yeah. And so like, how do I now talk to people who might be one of those under-functioning people, you know, because that's also a strategy, right? When you say under-functioning, do you mean like people who are not understanding the material or not putting in enough attention or... I'm talking about people who... It's. I've been thinking about this in terms of like strategies for protection, right? Like, yeah, I'm realizing that me learning so hard to be noticed by the teacher, to be the smartest student, yeah. that is actually a strategy to to hide my insecurity, right? And so, the, mm. by the underfunctioning, what I mean is the exact opposite. Like the students who are like, I don't know, I didn't do the homework, I didn't feel like it. I didn't totally understand, but I don't know what my questions are either. Yeah. And it's it's really like I'm saying this with a lot of compassion because to me, actually, the overperforming and the underperforming by colonial standard students are actually the same, you know, yeah. they're tending to the same needs, right? Yeah. 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 I for me, one of the I think one of the like the the presupposition 
that I come to every relationship with or meeting any person is that people are inherently good. Mm-hmm. And so then I can look at, especially like in the context of students, but we can apply this to just like personal relationships in general. If someone's not function, I'm putting quotes around functioning because mm-hmm. everyone's functioning, but if someone's not doing the work or not mm-hmm. coming to the table, doing, you know, hundred percent of the work, it's one, not because they're a bad student or a bad person, but because that is an attempt, a strategy to meet an unmet need that they have or unmet needs that they have. Mm -hmm. And so then I become curious about like, what do you need right now? What are you going through? What do you need? What, what, what is, what makes it the case that, you know, only doing 50% of participation is actually what you need right now? And how can we tend to the need instead of like, how can we make you, you know, the square peg that fits in the square hole of this class? Yes. How can you be a round peg and get your needs met and participate to the best of your ability and that you and I can have a rich relationship, whether or not you do the work in this class or not, you mm-hmm. know, like it's harder in, obviously that was a harder lesson for me to learn when I was a classroom teacher, because what I had to do in order to do that was come to hate the system of um, public education. Yeah. I had to really come to be like, there's a tension here. Why is a student causing this tension for me? Oh, because they're inherently good and they're perfect. Mm. This system is flawed and trying to make them into something that they're not able to do right now. Mm -hmm. So I had to come to hate the system and really like, admire and love and adore the person for coming to the table with what the system would call flaws quotes around flaws Mm -hmm. and and look at like this is exactly what's here right now in the room yeah this is beautiful there's nothing wrong here Mm -hmm. let's just look at the unmet needs and let's tend to that and I feel like I bring that I bring that to the I bring that lens when I you know meet new friends or meet new people or when there's someone that wants to engage in relationship with me and I want to engage in a relationship with them, I'll look at immediately, like, what are they doing that irks me? Why are they doing this? Mm. And it's not because they're bad. It Mm -hmm. is because there's something else that I don't know about that's happening Mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. And then I can decide because I love strategies and boundaries. Is this someone that I want to, uh, you know, like give more to and invest in, or does it seem like this is not actually a match for me? Mm. And can I love them and understand that they're inherently good from afar instead of like get into a deep relationship with someone and expect them to do something that they are not designed to do mm-hmm. at this time? Mm. Wow. Okay. I want to, I feel like like all great conversations, <laughs> we started mid-sentence. And mm. I kind of want to um, pull us back a little bit just for okay. the sake maybe of the listeners. I, I'm curious to hear what you, how you would respond to this question. So I, I'm remembering as you're speaking that there was a question I asked all of my guests in this podcast, which is, who do you sense, know, or feel yourself to be? And maybe that's in relation to your work, or maybe that's just in relation to you being an alive being at this moment, talking to me. Like, who do I know myself to be? Who do I, like, Mm -hmm. who do I think I am? Yeah. Or who do you sense yourself to be? Who do you feel yourself to be? 
I don't exist. <laughs> um, I'm not actually here. I'm you and I are both experiencing Leah Garza like you're observing and interacting with Leah and I'm embodying Leah but that is not that's like who I'm being right now but that is not who I am and I don't even think I can answer the question of am because am am feels so fixed Mm -hmm. and what I believe is that I am an experience of an underlying reality of all that is. Mm. And so right now the embodiment of Leah is like, she has this opinion. She has these acrylic nails and she like this thing. And she has, you know, she's doing a PhD, but like, you know, I think like, if I were to answer that, then I would have to have a sense of linear time or, and fixity in time. Mm. And I don't have that anymore. And I think it's because of my Akashic perspective, my, like my work in the Akashic records has started to unravel a lot of the things that I grew up believing, which is like time is linear, process mm. is linear. Um, even the idea of like past lives as if lives lifetimes are in the past, like mm-hmm what I understand now or what feels real to me now. And I've experienced this actually like in real life is like time is time is an illusion of distance Mm. that there, there isn't a distance between things at all there. And so like our minds really enjoy and have an ease with with understanding reality through distance and through time and through mm-hmm. like steps and a trajectory and arc and any other way you want to conceive of it but like i am also the other lifetimes that i've been experienced that i've experienced all at once i am also not in a body i am also the chair i'm sitting in like yeah. we're exchanging atoms right now Mm -hmm. um and i and i i think like i know this all sounds like who the hell does she think she is with this highfalutin esoteric philosophical spiritual perspective and i wouldn't just like you know like i'm not going around saying this to people to alienate people but Mm -hmm. you asked me so i'm answering yeah but like i i i can really feel a detachment from what Leah is at this mm-hmm. point in a fun way, in like mm-hmm. a, in a really fun way, in a way that's like, you know, when I'm having a meltdown, being <laughs> able to be like, yeah, I'm having a meltdown and oh, Leah's having a meltdown. Yeah. <laughs> like I can feel that it doesn't mean it doesn't minimize the pain that I feel mm. or the worry or the anxiety that I experience. Those are real experiences and at the same time, I know that they are just experiences and they are not the fixed truth of who I am. Mm-hmm. And that only came about through like a committed devotional, a committed devotion to the Akashic practice. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the Akasha is in in the 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 teachings and the lineage of of Hinduism called Advaita Vedanta the akasha or akasa is it's the like the primordial ether Mm. 
of creation of the cosmic egg yeah of the underlying reality of all that is and from whence this thing sprung all other building blocks of life came so Mm. the air the fire the earth all those things we know these because they are transcultural these building blocks they cross Mm -hmm. across they go they move across cultures yeah but the akasha was the first it's it's the first thing and so if if what i am what i am understanding as leah at this point is that that is where i come from and that is where my consciousness comes from and that i am actually that and i actually am not i i am just an illusion so in advaita vedanta we would call that underlying reality brahman and then they would call the illusion maya maya is the force that brahman takes on an illusionary and an illusory form and it mm. is a temporary one mm-hmm. and so to say that i am leah is actually an illusion it's an it's an illusion but it doesn't make my experience any less palpable and real it's like if you get on a roller coaster and you feel the terror of that first drop that's a real experience of terror that your body is feeling i'm gonna mm-hmm. die this is terrifying mm-hmm. whatever you may like it or hate it i hate it but then you get off the roller coaster and the terror wasn't the terror was real but that you might die was an illusion mm-hmm. The experience that this is the only reality that I'm going to die. My body is being flung all over the place. It's temporary. It's an illusion. You get off the roller coaster. You can get back on. You can have other lifetimes. You can do it again and again. But um, I feel that detachment in my everyday life. And one of the reasons I know that that time is, is, or distance and time are, are illusions themselves, is that I've had experiences where I really needed something and then it popped into my head. You already did that. You did the thing that you need. You did it three months ago. Go look for that thing right now. Hmm. And I'll look up in a journal that I wrote something that is exactly the answer to my need right now, Hmm. or a post that I made on Instagram four months ago is speaking to me in the present moment. And I real and, and I know only through the sense of resonance that yeah. that is, I wasn't writing to people on Instagram. I was writing to future quotes around future Leah mm-hmm. because Leah needed that now. So like the, then, then like, then there is no distance of time. Yeah. 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 I think it's always so humbling for anybody who has like a journaling practice or even like shares their work, how like you would look back at your work like five years ago and you're like, I'm, I've been saying exactly the same thing for five years. Yeah. Sometimes, (laughs) or, or I was saying something totally different because, oh, Leah was only there then. Yeah. Right. Right. But that's not to say too. Right. But there's, that's not to say that like, even if you are mortified now, doesn't mean you're not going to be relieved three months from now. Right? Yeah, because that's true. You're always yeah. kind of in that circle. Yeah. I, I'm curious if that awareness of Leah, Leah Garza doesn't exist. Um, what was your, what has been your relationship with it throughout your life? Do you feel like at some point that was harder than now to kind of grapple with i certainly did not always feel that way about myself or Mm. know know this i i think like growing i mean like to to take on that knowledge 
that I don't exist is a demonstration of the way that I have gotten to the other side of trauma in my life Mm -hmm. because trauma makes you believe that the experience is the only reality, whatever Mm -hmm. you're experiencing, your trigger, your trauma response, that this is the only reality. The body is locked into a response that it is like, you have to survive. And so Mm -hmm. you're, it's very, and I always say this to, to, I, I probably, you probably heard me say this, like to students, like, if you're triggered, that's not the time to like sit down and write a very erudite essay on some high higher order thinking. Mm-hmm. That's the moment to tend to the body. That's mm-hmm. the time to like first look at what do you need right now. Yeah. And so like I was living in that for like the first, I don't know. I want to say 27 years of my life because 27 is when my dad died. And that's when I first started to let go. Hmm. like the real beginning to let go of the trauma that you know I experienced at the hands of that relationship yeah but then it just started to dissolve more and more over time I didn't get to the Akashic Records till I was 35 Hmm. I didn't get to EMDR till I was 41 and so with each of those like mile markers on my path the the stranglehold that trauma had on my not just on my body but on my perspective on what is reality Mm -hmm. what is fixed and cannot change what is the truth I have to just deal with that all started to dissolve and erode and then and 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 like when we're fighting to survive that is the time when we really double down on what do we know about ourselves we Mm -hmm. really double down on my identity is this and this and this and I'm this and I'm that because that is a way of surviving especially in a culture that ask that of you mm-hmm. and when the trauma when the traumatic experience so like i i'm i'm loath to use the word healing but really what it is is a transformation of my relationship with the trauma yeah i don't know what healing means anymore i don't i don't know what it means but like i wasn't so stuck in its grasp the way mm-hmm. i was in my earlier life and yeah. so now i can play with or I can even, so like going back to that analogy of like having safety in the classroom, I started to have safety in my experience, feeling a safety that like, what if I'm not those things I thought I was? Mm-hmm. What if I'm not just that? So for example, my trauma response and the the the, the crisis of my upbringing taught me that my job is to manage all emergencies for people, even at a young age, make sure everyone is safe, make sure everyone's needs are met. Don't worry about yourself. If you want to belong here and be loved, you better manage everything. Mm -hmm. So that guess what pushed me into like a career pathway of like management and being like a nonprofit director and like being a classroom teacher and like class school administrator management jobs because I believed that oh that's just who I am I Mm. didn't know that's a trauma response Mm. (laughs) that was like the way that you survived your childhood was to become a manager of crisis yeah Yeah. I just thought I'm just good at it and it wasn't really until like quarantine when I was not around people that I realized I really don't I hate that way of orienting to relationships with people. Mm-hmm. I yes, I'm good at it. I can like I can run a ship, man. Like if there's a if there's a crazy earthquake, you better believe my entire building is going to survive and I'll make sure <laughs> of it. But like that's not how I want to live. Yeah. And and yeah. so like I had to really 
start to feel safety in my body and in experience in life to play with like, who am I then? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. I'm just feeling so much from that share. Um, and recognizing too, like, I can only really use my personality and my life as, mm-hmm. you know, a point of reference to respond to what you're saying but in my experience too like we don't get to see that a skill that we have or like a talent that we have is actually a coping mechanism until we're ready to see it you know like it takes sometimes it takes like a really really long time you know even if you're like actively doing quote-unquote healing work it can take forever and so what I'm wondering about Leah especially in your work right now I know you have like so many students between (laughs) living systems and Akashic mentorship combined and something I'm wondering about is I wonder if you have noticed certain patterns in terms of like people coming in and hardening or trying to protect themselves from certain concepts or yeah uh certain practices that you are introducing to them i mean i'm currently yeah. thinking personally for myself this idea that you brought up with the akashic mentorship of opening the records every day was very hard for me the first couple yeah. months and i yeah. i yeah. i know that that's not just me mm. yeah no uh yeah i want to talk i want to comment on that but um yes people hate to be told they're good (laughs) (laughs) people really hate that and i don't think they hate it here's my i've listened to people's explanations of why people are inherently good is not correct i've listened to it Mm. and what and i'm sorry if people disagree with me but what I think is that at the core that that actually resonates, but we have been told continuously in our colonial upbringing that you have to earn goodness. Mm-hmm. You have to demonstrate that you're good. And you mm-hmm. do that through qualities of being like, are you loyal? Do you have integrity? Are you yeah. honest? Are you prepared? Even, <laughs> even if those things come at the cost of you denying your own needs, mm-hmm. like, Maybe you want to do this thing because that's what you're interested in. But in order to get approval from the people around you, you'll leave that and do the thing, you know, that they want you to do. And you'll never touch this thing. And now you've abandoned yourself or you'll go behind their backs and you'll do this thing secretly. And now you're not honest Mm. and now you're not good. And now you have shame. It is so painful. So then, because it's so painful to be told you're not good, but we want you to be good. So you better earn it, but it's a benchmark you'll never be able to meet in this culture. And so you spend your life trying to meet it. And then here I come and I'm like, no, that whole experience you've had of life was wrong to tell you that. Mm -hmm. You've spent your life developing an identity around earning your goodness. And I'll talk about myself. Look at how many degrees I have. Look at how long I was in education, all the things I did for my students. Look at all of, look at my resume. Look at what my friends would say about me. Look at the way I show up in times of crisis. Look at how reliable I am. Look at how much money I've saved. Look at um, how 
I set up a room for my friend when they come stay with me. Look at how I send a birthday card, even if they didn't remember mine. You know, like look, look at all the ways I can show that I'm good. Mm. I've this that if I if I didn't know that I don't exist, I would say that's who Leah is. Leah is this good girl trying to be. Maybe she's not good, but she's trying to be every day. And I've developed a whole life around it and a whole identity, an idea of who I am. It's my whole compass. And then I'm like, no, you don't have to do any of that. And and that leaves people with a sense of like, well, then what is reality? Mm. You know, like I can't trust anything. Mm-hmm. And instead of like entertaining the notion that it's as simple as I'm inherently good and unmet needs are the reason why I've done quote unquote bad things or bad things have been done to me. Mm-hmm. I would rather reject this concept and hold on to what I do know has that has been true for the X amount of decades I've been alive. Yeah. And then I just like as as the teacher and like the steward of the classroom and as the steward of that concept that didn't come from me, it came through the Akasha. I just honor that person's experience and attempt to the best of my ability to meet them at where they're at without mm-hmm. backing down on my belief on that. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, that, that is probably the number one most difficult concept that I present through my work mm-hmm. for people to, I mean, it's, I I can think of like probably like 20 students that I've had one-on-one conversations with where they're trying to convince me that in, in all manner of convincing that this is not, a, this is not an okay. And I'm not going to say a true concept, but this is not an okay thing to teach. Mm. Like mm-hmm. telling me I'm reckless, telling me this is irresponsible, telling me this is a lie. I'm lying to people, like all kinds of like conversations. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I'm here's what I'm thinking right now. I'm also curious if you feel, especially for people who have had experiences of like deep invalidation in. Yeah their lives or i'm just going to lump myself in there as someone who has had experience <laughs> of deep invalidation in my life yeah one of the ways i remember when when you first introduced that concept to me personally what was a little bit challenging i, I personally never had the difficulty of validating myself and my own yeah. inherent goodness yeah but there was a part of me that that was like but what about donald trump you know or like what about mm-hmm. some other yeah. really horrible entity or organization or person yeah. or or people even that yeah. i now have to validate in mm-hmm. order for me to to allow this concept to to work through me do you notice that as a subtext too? does that make, make sense what do you mean what is your definition of validation what does that mean to you mm, my my point in saying that was that if I want to apply this lens of we are all inherently good or people mm-hmm. are inherently good, then I also have to, in some on some level, believe that my oppressors were also yeah. inherently good. Yeah. So what I hope my teachings do 
is start with that statement of inherent goodness. And then I hope I undermine the definition of what goodness is in the colonial world. Mm. So goodness is not to have a plus value and others don't. Yeah, Goodness is not value or worth related at all. Mm-hmm. Goodness actually doesn't exist in the Akasha. The Akasha is everything. The Akasha is related to Brahman. Brahman is the underlying reality of everything that exists. Everything that exists cannot be inherently good or bad. Mm. It only is. It only Mm. just is. It Mm -hmm. is is the experience of pure consciousness. Mm -hmm. So what I'm actually saying when I say that, and it takes time to like start to understand this it's like you're not inherently good you you inherently are Mm -hmm. you and you are inherently a part of all that exists and Mm -hmm. all that exists is neutral because it just is Mm -hmm. but the way that we are programmed in our society is to tell you you have a negative value assignment and Mm -hmm. you have to work your way up to getting the positive value assignment so what I am doing is I'm shocking people's system mm-hmm. by swinging their, trying to swing their pendulum all the way to the other side. Mm-hmm. I am using that strategy. That's a strategy. I'm being shocking to, to, to really like push you so far off the course of, of trying to earn goodness that from that place, we can start to work back intellectually to what I just said mm-hmm. about neutrality. Yeah. So someone like Donald Trump is a part of all that is, is Donald Trump is also an illusion. Mm -hmm. He's embodying this being right now for some reason, but at the core of Donald Trump, at some point he will die. The atoms of his body will be redistributed back to the system of the earth the consciousness of Donald Trump, which never separated from the pure consciousness of all that is, will maybe take on another illusion form, an illusory form of another being, a tree, a person, a dog, a phone. I don't know. Does that mean I have to like him? No. Mm-hmm. Can I hate him? Totally. This isn't to say that. So like when we understand we're part of all that exists, that doesn't mean approval or liking or agreement. Yeah. And I think that's where like this is why English is such a failure here because we validate is to validate comes from like valid which I imagine comes from like the the Latin roots for truth which I don't mm-hmm. know what they are but like um in Spanish you say es valido it's it's true it's mm-hmm. it's true. Mm-hmm. So what we're saying is like but what I think what happens is in English, there's a connotation that gets attached to it of like, oh, yeah, I'll validate that. I like it. Mm-hmm. I agree with it. And that's yeah. absolutely not what I'm talking about. So this is why teaching resonance. I don't want to say teaching resonance. We all know what resonance is. but It's a natural part of our, our experience in our bodies. But talking about resonance <laughs> is challenging for people because we've been taught to equate resonance with liking or pleasure mm-hmm. or agreement like oh yeah that resonates with me i like that and mm-hmm. those those are not they they they're not equal mm-hmm. they don't mean the same thing mm-hmm. resonance is a yes or a no it resonates as a yes move forward it resonates as or it doesn't resonate it's a no do not move forward mm-hmm. and from there we can 
decide to agree with it, not agree with it, like it, don't like it, it doesn't matter. Those are other parts of our understanding of experience. But resonance is just the yes or no, no positive or minus value attachment to either of those experiences. But people come to the table thinking that resonance means like or approve. And so we have to like really unlearn that attachment of those meanings to the experience of resonance. So I would say, yeah, that's very difficult. So this this is why the second presupposition of my work is that unmet needs are what motivate behavior. Mm -hmm. So if there's a person that we, we find especially heinous, bad, terrible, I hate them. They're awful. Why are they the way they are? If they're inherently good, if they're Mm -hmm. inherently a part of all that is, if they're no no, if there's no separation between me and them in the underlying reality, why would I hate them so much? Or why would mm-hmm. they do the things that they do to make us hate them? Yeah. And that is well, part of the machination of the person. That is a part of like the workings, the inner workings of whatever makes sense based on their their upbringing, their socialization, their concept of identity, their felonious education that they received, their um, you know, trauma they experience, their soul or, you know, whatever underlying reality, Akashic, like, you know, intention for this embodiment. Like there's so many parts of our, you know, makings that push us to do the things that we do. Our astrology, our, you know, like all these things that like set us up for the kinds of ways we will respond to reality. And this is like where like, I mean, there's so many like different examples of like people saying this is what enlightened is this. No, that's what enlightened is. But like when we come into an awareness of even noticing, hey, I do this thing. I notice mm-hmm. that I respond this way. I notice that I uh, Donald Trump was like, wow, I'm a terrible liar who loves power and abusing people. And <laughs> like if we had that awareness. That's the doorway to investigating why do i do this stuff mm-hmm. is there another option mm-hmm. and maybe mm-hmm. that's maybe that doorway is like well i have free will i don't want to explore that stuff i don't care i don't care that i'm a terrible person i prefer the way i live so i'm gonna keep doing it and that's also a part of the underlying reality that's also brahman that's also a mm-hmm. part of all that is yeah yeah i also noticed that within myself but definitely within some of the other people that I've befriended in the containers, this idea of unmet needs can also be challenging, you know, because it's almost that like, it's like pointing to a grief that our conscious awareness doesn't always Mm -hmm. want to see, right? And also, it's interesting, Leah, I never caught it this way, but I've heard a couple of people say unmet needs or use it in a sentence that makes me perceive an underlying belief that unmet needs are needs that can never be met Mm, or like like that that maybe some for example i'm going to give again a very maybe personal example um my grandpa and i were not close when we were kids right and then um as we as both of us grew older he became more fond of me but it didn't change the fact that when i was a kid he was consistently rejecting me Right. And so that imprint of having been rejected, even through the repair of the later years, still exists. We can't deny the fact that he was kind of a dick when I was a child. Right. Yeah. And and that I think is implied when we're talking about unmet needs, right? Because some of these unmet needs, you can't technically go back to the past and fix them. 
Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So one, I would say unmet needs are in my work are never material. Mm. The material things that we need are strategies to meet an unmet need. So for example, if you felt, if your grandpa was a, was a jerk to you and you felt rejected and from Mm. that rejection, you feel abandoned. Mm -hmm. Maybe when you feel abandoned, you have a need to feel loved, to feel Mm -hmm. included, to feel seen, to feel validated, to feel, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. Maybe a strategy to meeting that unmet need is your grandfather apologizing to you. Mm -hmm. But you don't actually need the apology to fulfill the unmet need of abandonment. And we know this because we have rupturous relationships with people that harm us and then they die and people are still able to work through those unmet needs without yes. them being physically present. Yes. So the physical is a strategy to reach the unmet need. The unmet need is referring to an emotional state of being. And I think that's hard for people. If you don't dive into the work with me, I hate even saying the work, like I'm some freaking, I don't know, whatever. <laughs> but like, if you don't dig into the concepts that I'm presenting mm-hmm. and you just like kind of casually browse what I'm doing, you might think an unmet need is like, oh, well, I need, you know, you know, I need this new car because it will make me feel better. Mm-hmm. No, you don't mm-hmm. do it. But the strategy of whatever, like maybe feeling better is what you need because you actually feel powerless or you feel helpless or you feel worthless. Yeah. And so the strategy that you're going to take to feel better, whatever that means, that's not even what I would call an need, but the strategy is buying a new car. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. getting clear on what do you feel? What do you need? How do you meet that need? That's like essential to the work that I do. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what was the second part? Oh, that some needs are unfixable or unattainable. Yeah. I mean, my first response would be like, if you're trying to fix something, then you must think that it's broken. And if you think that it's broken, you must have an assumption that there's a proper way for something to exist, Mm. which means you're firmly planted in the colonial ontology. Mm. Because if we believe in entanglement, Mm -hmm. if we believe that things become with entangling with each other, Mm -hmm. then nothing can ever be broken. Yeah. I could literally, you know, break my leg. It becomes infected. I have to have it cut off. And now I could take two perspectives. I could say, oh my gosh, my body is disabled. I am broken. How will I function? I need a way to fix this. Or I could say, my body is not broken. It has taken a new form. It has entangled with the break and with the infection and it has taken on the, I I'm not broken. I am. Mm. I'm, I'm a body that has emerged in a different form. Mm -hmm. And so I really, I, I love the idea of meet an unmet need because nothing about the word meeting is implying fixing. It's really just Mm. like, I'm coming to see it and see what it tells me. I'm yeah. coming to, I'm, I'm going to visit myself to see what it is I'm feeling and what mm-hmm. I need and what is the status of me Yeah. rather than I'm going to do the repairs, fix the thing up, put it back on the market, get back on the horse. You know, like it's a different 
ontology that I think we're coming from. So if you feel Mm. like I can never meet this need, I would even look at why is that true for you? Mm. What is it about never meeting this need that actually is serving you? Like holding on to this unmet need in some way must be the the strategy your body is using right now for whatever reason. (laughs) Yeah. 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 It's reminding me of one of Diana Rose Harper's posts about um, turning towards tending rather than healing and how that was such a, I mean, pun intended, that was such a tender post, you know, to read because in many ways, it's interesting because I, I mean, literally the name of this podcast is Healing the Spirit. I clearly don't have a problem with the word healing. (laughs) (laughs) But, but for me, I realized too, that like I come, I don't even know if this is ontology or philosophy or cosmology, but I don't see healing as like fixing. Mm, yeah i do see healing as like a a process and but i also acknowledge that like in the collective there is that attachment that we've created right with like healing looks a certain way but that's not my personal thing but anyways the words themselves don't matter but i do think that there is kind of an energetic behind like tending or meeting that is much more rooted in the truth of how that work actually looks like if that makes sense Mm-hmm. Yeah, I the, I mean I don't have a problem with the word healing anymore. It's either I, I don't have a problem with the word healing. It's just that so many people have different definitions for it yes. or different underlying definitions for it. Yes. And I never know when I'm on the same page with someone. Mm. Um if for some people healing can mean escaping or yeah. ridding yourself of something or yeah. fixing or <laughs> and I also don't orient to that in the in the way that they do i orient it to it more in the way you do Mm. so i have no problem actually with the word and i know that like it doesn't matter what someone's actual definition is at the core this is a person who is not happy or satisfied with the state of their being right yeah yeah so whether they have a hope to escape or transform or get rid of or fix something is desire they're desiring to change something and it and it's not and it, and it's the desire is coming from a discomfort from mm. from a pain mm-hmm. and so that that is the place where I will meet that person like if it's a client like I won't spend time unless if we have to like trying to get someone to take on my definition yeah it that yeah. that's like the surface level conversation and that's not where i am anymore with people yeah. i'm not really interested in that and yeah 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 mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah i am this is where my mind is going right now but i'm totally willing for you to take it somewhere else but i'm curious to hear you talk actually a little bit more about living systems yeah and also the akashic mentorship and because I know that, for example, with Living Systems, I know that you have you're planning a new cohort in 2024, yeah. and yeah, yeah I want to hear you know because yeah, that that's always something that I find myself, um, like when I try to think about how to explain this class, this experience, this uh, Leah Garza magic, I'm always yeah. kind of <laughs> stumbling forward. So yeah, yeah. Yeah. So living systems, 
is such a sweet course to me. It is a class that emerged from my PhD studies. I'm I'm writing my dissertation in a program in depth psychology. I study community liberation, indigenous and eco psychology at Pacifica Graduate Institute. And I study those things, we study those things from a lens of decoloniality and emergence. And I personally have got become in my own studies very fascinated with post-humanism um, in addition to those other lenses. And um, I created this class for a few reasons. One, I have this constant nagging voice in my head that's like, what is this worth if everyone can't have access to it? Mm. Like, I, I think that's why I like the Akashic practice because all you need is a prayer, a meditation, an invocation, and yeah. you can do this spiritual work. You don't need tools. You don't need to spend money. You don't need a million expensive sound bowls. You don't need, you know, a light crystal table to do this work. Anyone mm -hmm. can do it. You could do this in prison. You could do this if you live in the woods and you don't have anything. You could do, you know, like anyone can do it. And that's why that's something that speaks to me a lot. And so I thought about like, what would happen if like people got a hold of these concepts? Hmm. I really, like I said in the beginning, you know, academia, I deal with a lot of people that um, believe in the, diff the, the separation between an academic and a regular person. I even hate saying that, but like a non-academic person. Yeah. And there, there's a lot of like, you know, people say like, you know, there's so many labels like, a lay person, a non-academic, mm. a, a regular person, mm -hmm. uh, the public, like all these words to make this distinction. And I don't think, I don't feel like, I feel like I am one of the regular people moonlighting <laughs> as an academic or like I got, you know, I got invited to the party. Um, but my heart is that I am that regular person. And I, I, I love to have rich conversations with, with people and I, and based on my experiences conversing with people and being curious about people and engaging people's curiosities, I know, I knew that people would love to have access to these concepts and have access to a space where we can talk about them. And I realized, actually, I realized just the other day in talking to my friend, Katie Robinson, that a core value of living systems or a core interest, a core pleasure, a delight of mine is intellectual intimacy. Mm -hmm. The intimacy that is forged through just riffing on ideas and talking and, 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 and like, but we can't just have that conversation with a non-academic person on a concept like ontology, because mm -hmm. not everyone's going to know it. So yeah. what if, what if I take these ideas I use my stellar teaching ability and I like deliver them to people so that we can have these conversations and yeah. see what kinds of intimacy, you know, develop from there, what mm -hmm. kinds of things. And in the first cohort, we saw incredible things happen, like your podcast with Mary and like Paula making a, um, a, a Oracle deck and like, you know, like people taking these things on and doing them in their, you know, Stacy teaching about relationality and entanglement in her mm -hmm. work. And like, mm -hmm. we, we saw so many people like take the ideas into their lives. And that's like really what I wanted was like, how do I give this away? Mm -hmm. um, and then it became 
clear that like, wow, we're doing decolonial work. I want to write about this in my dissertation. Mm -hmm. And I'm very transparent with it. I'm not like, oh, I got all these test subjects and now I'm secretly testing them on this curriculum. No, I'm very clear that this is also my interest. But I want people in the academy to see this is what can happen when you distribute these ideas. Mm-hmm. And it isn't, and and I never like, I hope that it's clear that I never tell people, this is what you need to believe. Mm-hmm. What I say is like, this is an offering. If it resonates, you should like see how it works in your life. If it doesn't throw it out there, you're under no obligation to agree with me, to like me, to even respect my ideas, like no obligation at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so living systems is really about teaching people how how could we dream up our experience differently if we understand that we are all and everything that exists is a part of an inherent belonging of ecology. Yeah. Or yeah. sorry, an ecology of belonging. Yeah. That everything and everyone that exists has a role in a living system for the sustenance of life. Not yeah. a role like I'm important. I'm a celebrity. I'm better than everyone else. But that so like the example that I give people that's very clear to me is like if you are standing next to a a tree and you're exhaling carbon dioxide and that tree is taking the carbon dioxide in and processing it and emitting oxygen and you breathe that oxygen in your role is to help sustain the life of the tree and the tree's role is to help sustain the life of you. Mm-hmm. You're both a part of an ecology. Yeah. And you both belong in that place. You belong mm-hmm. to each other. Mm-hmm. You belong in that system of life, sustaining yeah. life. Yeah. And so like what would be different in our lived experiences if we knew that we belonged here and we didn't have to earn our belonging, that we mm-hmm. don't have to prove we're inherently good to deserve to belong here. Yeah. And, and so like, that's why, like, why would learning about ecology have anything to do with like inherent goodness or talking about people are inherently good. Can you see the connection now between those two things? Yeah. 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 I mean, this is what I wanted to bring up actually, that I think the past couple of years, being with you in living systems as well as the akashic mentorship has for me personally really transformed my conscious understanding of love Mm -hmm. and what love even means and recently actually in the last akashic mentorship class what i experienced was love as this milk of the primordial mother which sounds so fucking yeah. weird but it's like it's kind of like the the seed from which life can spring and form yeah. can happen right yeah. and it's like yeah. that space of possibility it's so it's so hard to put it in words because i think a lot of us don't have the ontology we don't have the cosmology yeah. in this modern american world to make yeah. sense of it yeah but at the same time i think when you try to feel into concepts like that in your body it's really potent and it's really powerful yeah and yeah. it also i think the transformation leah is subtle is rather unconscious and it's also yeah. for me 
it happens quite slowly over time because it's like at first my brain meets these concepts right but then yes you know there's this whole other part of the iceberg that's not the tip yeah right that needs to kind of start uh, upgrading or start getting infected by that virus (laughs) yeah Yeah. and then it starts shifting you know but I think in the shift in shifting on a deep and fundamental level my idea of what love even means and working on my own lived experience like as this person that is being called Jonathan having the Mm -hmm. parents that I had coming from the cultures I came from like really working on those things is actually not like individualism for me anymore it's really interesting because because I when I first came into this work I thought this was like personal empowerment work yeah not yeah, not yeah. your work specifically but just like no but just the, like this world of work the yeah. the world of work of healing industrial complex right yeah um but i think through your class i've realized that it's now shifted into something else and i'm understanding doing my quote-unquote personal work as actually also doing the world the work of the world right because yeah. i'm yeah. not separate from the world you yeah. know and yes. yeah what do you have to say to that um yeah, I actually had this I had this thought yesterday and I texted it to a friend of mine and it was essentially what you're saying that like, like I I wrote I just had a thought the theory that consciousness comes to know itself through experiencing itself is like a large scale parallel experience of the world The world becomes the world through all the experiences of reality in and on it. Therefore, everything is the world. There is no should be for the world, which we know, but do we know why? I think I say that almost to assuage the emotion of not good enough. Like I say, should be Mm -hmm. to assuage an underlying emotion of not good enough. So I unconsciously invoke a should be as an ontological framework for existence But if all experiences make the world, then it's phenomenologically impossible for there to be a way the world should be. It's not even possible. The -hmm. world should not like should be is a. A lens through which we shouldn't even look at the world Mm -hmm. because the world is the experiences in and on it. Mm There is nothing separate. We're not separate from the world like. If something's painful, if something's uncomfortable, if them, something's oppressive, that doesn't make it any less the world. Mm. And the, the difference with living systems is that some of the ways of the world do not sustain life. They're not designed to sustain life in perpetuity, like mm. extractive capitalist practices. There's an end point to those. And yeah. we're seeing it as we embark on this mass extinction event that we're at the beginning of. So how can we get into ways of being that are not right or wrong, but sustain life Mm. that, that regenerate life? How can we feel belonging there? Mm. Um, It does. Yeah. I think like there's an inherent need in the colonial world to should be the idea of should that's a value judgment you're Mm -hmm. saying you have an idea of what 
isn't happening, but what you think should be happening, mm-hmm. because what isn't happening or, or what's happening now, you've assigned a negative value judgment to it. Mm-hmm. And that, that might be because it's painful, because it's oppressive, because it's expensive, because it's irrational, who knows what. But there is no right or wrong in what I'm talking about. What if instead of looking at right or wrong, we just look at the benchmark of does it sustain life? Hmm. Is it sustaining life for all people? And sustain life doesn't mean live forever. We include in that cycles of death and birth. Yes. We include in that cycles of composting and emergence of life. We we include in that decomposition and and regrowth. We you know like so it doesn't mean living forever, but it means does it sustain the cycle? Does it sus- yeah. or is it taking faster than it can regenerate? Mm-hmm. So that's like kind of like what I want people to consider in living systems. And I think your your idea of opening up to love in this way is opening up to that regeneration that mm-hmm. we don't need to hoard anything, in, even love for us to live and mm-hmm. be a part of, and to belong and to be a part of the living system. We don't need to, it's, mm-hmm. there's enough for everyone. In fact, it isn't even quantifiable. Love is not measurable. It, there's no, so the fact that we apply a measurement um, scale to love tells you how, what reality we're living in, what ontology we're living in, the mm-hmm. ontology of colonialism, the ontology of modernism, of capitalism, mm-hmm. um, which is not right or wrong. Again, I'm not saying that that's not the world. I'm not saying that that's a bad way to be. Mm-hmm. But I've heard from many people, it doesn't feel good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Mm. Wow. Thank you, Leah. That has been, this has been an incredible conversation. I just love oh, talking wow. with you. I love talking with you too. Thank you. You're welcome. I I'm curious if there's anything I haven't asked that you wanna that you wanna say here, or is there anything I, I should so. ask that I didn't? I don't think so. Hmm. I yeah no, there's no there's no should. So there's no should. <laughs> yeah. We did everything just right. Oh, yeah. thank you, Leah. This has been so good. I just love spending time with you. I appreciate Thank you. you. Mm-hmm. I appreciate you too. It's so generative and yeah, I just really adore it. I adore mm-hmm. you. So thank you. Mm-hmm. If anyone listening wants to connect with you, how can they do that? Um, you can find me on Instagram at crystals of Altamira, or you can go to my website, crystals of Um, I'm really, uh, sh- I've shifted my focus a lot from doing public work like just with with random clients i used to do it a lot mm. i only do readings and sessions two days a month for, to the to the public so if people want to work with me mm-hmm. i highly recommend getting into one of my cohorts either living systems or the akashic mentorship they're both going to open up again in spring of next year and i'm actually mm. going to offer kind of like a teaser class that i did before called letting go of reality oh, I love which is like class. a five week it was so fun it's like mm-hmm. a five week intro to basically the world the the ip the you know of of crystals of altamira the crystals of altamira verse yeah 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 awesome um and living systems will start again in january right it's gonna start again and living systems is emerging i'm having a strategy meeting with people that are i guess my team i want to offer more classes and Mm -hmm. 
Um, because I want, I know that people want to stay, but there's only so long people are going to like take the same class over and over again. Yeah. So I want to like, I want to offer more things. I want to engage more guest teachers mm. for longer stints with us. I want it to feel like a very rich place for people and, mm. and really like a, like a Hogwarts where you long to be there with all of these people and these classmates and feel the magic, you know? Yeah, I, that's what I dream for it to really be feel like a home place mm, mm. of of intellectual intimacy. Yeah, well, I'm gonna write that down. That was, <laughs> I'll send you the transcript. That was great. Okay. <laughs> are you are that's you doing awesome. the um, Akashic mentorship again as well next year? Yes, I'm doing. I love the Akashic mentorship. I'm gonna do Me it too. again. I'm gonna open the doors again, um, and. I'm so taking new students. You don't have to know how to do Akashic work. You can come as a total newbie. You can come as an advanced practitioner. It doesn't matter um, because we're going to use the framework to go through a trajectory of like concepts and development and, and people are having wild transformation. I mean, you're, look at you, like people are going through <laughs> crazy things, like realizing, like, Yes. And the goal of the mentorship is, is, is rooted in this Joyce Carol Oates quote. I never change. I simply become more myself. Mm. So like, what can, what can we do with this acoustic perspective to become more ourselves? Yes. That's it. And so we're going to do that. And then later next year, I'm going to open a level two of the mentorship called relational Akasha, which will encompass, um, how to become a reader, even though I didn't want to do that. That's what the people demand. How to use Akashic for um, conflict resolution, a Akashic mm. perspective for resolving conflicts interpersonally and in community. Mm -hmm. And hopefully something on how do we relate and attract to other people platonically, romantically, sexually, mm. from an Akashic perspective. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like encompassing all of those ideas of inherent inherent goodness unmet needs you know love and then like engage in relationships yeah wow and it's like the precursor to my akashic dating program but that is yeah. so wild and it sounds so delicious i want to share something since being in your akashic mentorship what i've recognized is I kind of have stopped shying away from like, if I'm feeling something in the relational field, I came from uh, a world uh, framework where it's like, oh, you know, now you have to like, you know, uh, distance yourself energetically or like clear it out or things like that. You yeah. know, and that was my practice. Yeah. I came into yeah. your work uh, with that frame, but now I've started to actually like play with it like if yeah. i'm feeling like nervous or i'm suddenly zoning out when i'm talking yeah. to a person i try to like lean in naturally and bring it into i don't know like just even sometimes yeah. talk to the person about it being like yeah hey like that part when you were saying something suddenly i checked out can you like maybe rephrase that or and yeah. and i've noticed that in to me that's akashic because there's something about how we relate to one another that we can't always say or see yeah. but it's like my body especially in the framework of resonance my body is going to also reflect back to me 
the experience of this person that's in front of me may not yeah. be accurate yeah. right but there's entanglement yeah. here so like how can we actually yeah. work with the entanglement in a way that i don't know like bring something new you know i don't yeah. know if it's good or yes. bad but it's like new right mm-hmm. yeah and i i feel like what you're talking about is like you clearly have started to internalize that you're inherently good meaning that the way i show up in relationships is also inherently good even if it's not the way we've been taught we should show up even if the way i've been taught is to like diminish my needs mm. for the sake of the relationship mm-hmm. i'm not going to diminish that anymore because there's nothing bad about my needs yeah I, instead i'm going to like say that they're here and know that i'm still good and can we work through this together or you know whatever the thing is but like what I'm hearing is you really understanding yourself as inherently good Mm -hmm. and therefore nothing that you experience in a relationship or otherwise could actually be bad. Mm. And therefore then how can we talk about it? How can we shed light on it instead of pretending and then trying to be something else? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and that takes a lot of courage and confidence. And like, I want to support people to have that courage and confidence in relationship with each other or Mm. in dating or in, you know, what if you led with that in new relationships? How would that set the tone and make it safe for other people? Like, and obviously we're not going to jump to that from day one is we have to build up to this, but like, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that, Jonathan. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> thank you, Leah. And thank you for this conversation. Yeah. It's been great yeah, talking with you. you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.